As the capital city of the new Czechoslovak Republic, Prague drew a lot of international visitors in the 1920s and 30s. Here was the home, 600 years ago, of the blind King John of Bohemia, who was killed by the Black Prince at the Battle of Cressy. One of them was the British broadcaster Vernon Bartlett, who later went on to become one of Britain's most vocal opponents of Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement. He visited the city in 1932 and sent home a report that is unusual for the time in using radio vividly to evoke a sense of place. You may think that I sound too much like a tourist agent, but you would forgive me if you could see the view from the house where I am staying. To my left, on a hill above the river, is the old castle, away beyond the jumble of roofs and spires and domes of baroque churches is a large square named after an early king of Bohemia, none other than the good King Wenceslas of our Christmas carols. So that there is, I hope, some little excuse if, fascinated by the Prague of yesterday, I seem rather to have neglected the Czechoslovakia of today. Besides, yesterday helps one to understand today. It's much easier to understand how President Masaryk has become a national hero when one comes across the street in which lived that fearless religious reformer and national leader, John Huss. It's much easier to realize how, with these historical memories lurking in the background of national consciousness, the people followed the lead given them by Masaryk and his friends before and during the war in reviving the idea of an independent Bohemia and in carrying that idea through so that the maps of today show in the very centre of Europe that long, narrow country we know as Czechoslovakia. For all its history, as the modern capital of the new Czechoslovak Republic, Prague was a bustling city, and by the early 1930s, traffic was becoming a pretty serious problem. In 1934, the city's first traffic light was introduced at the bottom of Wenceslas Square, and the radio sent out a reporter to record this historic event. Hello, hello, he announces. We're at the big junction at Mustek, at the bottom of Wenceslas Square. He goes on to describe a scene which must have seemed quite exotic to millions of Czechs and Slovaks listening in provincial towns and villages. At small crossroads, the reporter explains, it's enough for a policeman to guide the traffic. But at big junctions like this, we have lights, red, yellow and green. Now the cars on the square are surging forwards. Yes, we have a green light. From today's perspective, the report sounds comic. But it's worth pointing out that this is an early example of an outside broadcast, an experiment in modern broadcasting. Visitors to Prague were often surprised by just how modern and open the city was. In 1937, a group of students came over from the United States. One of their professors was Dr. Edmund Miller, director of the American Junior Year Abroad program. I spoke a moment ago of this city of Prague as being an old city. And yet, in a very real sense, we have found it to be a new city. The very day we arrived... We were impressed by it. To drive from our railroad station to our hotel, we passed 
through the archways of three towers dating back from the Middle Ages, we cross the oldest stone bridge in Europe. We pass by the most famous clock, perhaps of all clocks in the world. And yet when we arrived in our hotel, we found the most modern furnishings, the most up-to-date equipment for the comfort, the most attractive beauty of our modern styles. We have found this to be a city and a country where social insurance is expected everywhere. So we have found that in this city there is a unique union of the beauty of an old world and the up-to-date, smart, and attractive newness of the very best of modern life. In conclusion, I may say that we have found this to be a land of democracy, and the name on the shops of the cooperatives here in Prague is to us a symbol of what Czechoslovakia stands for, Rovnost, equality. Some of the American students themselves spoke of their impressions. Because of the generous offer of the Czechoslovak Broadcasting Company, the Radio Journal of Prague, the American students studying in Prague find it possible to greet their friends back home and to tell them a few words about these people and their country. What impresses me most is the extraordinarily cordial and friendly attitude of the Czechs towards us, the American students. Their enthusiasm over you and their whole-hearted interest in you, their sincere desire to make your stay as pleasant as possible, and so on, are the things that make one enjoy it here and wish to stay here. Consequently, I haven't decided even now if I will go home next year or not. As for Prague itself, the most striking feature is the strange inconsistency between the modern and the medieval. We find the, the latest type of steel and concrete building next to old Gothic structures with walls three to six feet thick. New paved streets contrasted with old rough cobblestone ones. The latest tiles seen side by side with colorful peasant costumes and so on. In conclusion, I should like to send the heartiest greetings to all my relatives and friends in Clarkson, Rogers, and Lincoln, Nebraska, and in Pasadena, California. Greetings, America. To most Americans, Czechoslovakia is a romantic but little-known spot in the center of Europe. They know only that it is a republic created after the World War, and that many of the lovely toys and pieces of glassware which one buys in America say, made in Czechoslovakia. This is in great contrast to the knowledge the average Czechoslovak has about America. His impressions are gained to a great extent from our American moving pictures, automobiles, and tourists. He knows all about the skyscrapers, the gangsters, the Indians, and the wealth of America, and is always anxious to learn more. He considers every American a friend, and America a worthy example for his own republic. Thus we American exchange students came into a country to better relations, which are so good that they can scarcely be improved. My daily occupation here is studying and working in a chemistry laboratory, where I am under the direction of Professor Hayrovsky, one of the foremost chemists of the world. I am working with the polarograph, an instrument which Professor Hayrovsky invented, which makes use of an electroanalytic method for performing the most accurate qualitative, quantitative, and microchemical analyses. I find that Czechoslovakia is one of the most democratic countries of Europe. The methods of teaching are constantly improving 
and most of the schools are introducing the latest methods. Life here has a slower and a jollier tempo. It is more cultural and less mechanical as compared to ours. When one gets accustomed to it, he lives like in a dream, being hardly aware of it. The emphasis that the students place on Czechoslovakia as a democratic country is not surprising. This was 1937. Since 1933, the country had been under constant pressure from Nazi Germany, which made no secret of its ambitions to impose its own political order on Central Europe. You will now hear a brief talk by Mr. Wexler, editor for the American Student Union. Mr. Wexler is the leader of one of the student groups visiting this country. Mr. Wexler. About one month ago, 18 of us, American college men and women and recent graduates, sailed for Europe on a tour of social and political inquiry. Many of us had never been abroad before. To all of us, Europe was primarily a series of black, ominous headlines which foreshadowed war and the further destruction of democracy. We have already covered hundreds of miles. We have seen thousands of uniformed men. We have felt the depressing political tension which characterizes the whole world. But single events have occurred to challenge this atmosphere and to reassert the essential comradeship of the people of the world. One Sunday afternoon, we walked beside the Latava River outside of Prague, heading toward a settlement where for many years young Czechoslovakian men and women have found momentary refuge from the turmoil of city life. It was an amazing settlement, astonishing in its dignified simplicity and in the companionship which it signified. But even more startling was the reception accorded to us by our young Czech friends. They had never seen us before. We could not understand each other's language. But within one hour, our group had merged. We played volleyball, we bowled, we sang. And when we finally left, they presented us with a banner of their camp, and they followed us for hundreds of yards to wave goodbye. Their friendship was not mere politeness. It was a spontaneous, genuine gesture, a quiet, deeply felt reunion of human beings who want peace and decency enthroned in the world. These Czechs whom we met were of all classes and of all walks of life. Our group represents a dozen American states, and on that Sunday afternoon we were one. The air in Prague is free because democracy has survived here, and the desire for peace is ever-present. This is an interlude in a war-torn Europe, a nation whose people will not easily surrender their freedom nor encroach upon their neighbors. And from America, where too the people cherish liberty and peace, we could bring not merely a message of good feeling, but a sense of identity with the hopes of young Czechs. Once that solidarity is experienced by the whole young generation of the world, the strife of the present may dissolve. We found Prague beautiful and our hosts indescribably friendly, but above all we found young Czechs free, and for this we clasped hands. Not all visitors to Prague were serious in their tone. Here's a Scottish visitor in 1938. The archives give his name as J. Scott, talking about a rather unlikely connection between Czech bread rolls and the Loch Ness Monster. I confess I've been a little disappointed to find that many of you still regard the Loch Ness Monster 
with some doubt and suspicion. Well, I can't say that I have seen it myself, but uh, I have read so many reports by people who have seen it that I quite believe it exists. So much so that I have given a new name to the nine-inch undulating roll, which I find on your tables at breakfast, by calling it the Loch Ness Monster Roll. If you put two of these end to end, you get a very good outline of the drawings of the monster, which our papers have published. But better still, won't you come over to Scotland soon and see the monster in real life lashing its tail? A last word. I would emphasize the most friendly relations which have always existed between Britain and Czechoslovakia since this new state was established in 1918 between the respective governments and peoples. There are close ties of mutual respect and goodwill, and these, I believe, will endure. So far in this programme we've heard mainly from Prague, but the following recording takes us to the opposite end of Czechoslovakia. In August 1938, a certain Mr Lightfoot, also from Britain, came with a group of hill walkers to explore the stunningly beautiful mountains of Subcarpathian Ruthenia. This was the easternmost part of Czechoslovakia, and today forms part of Ukraine. He describes a lost world. Our plan of attack was to go as far east as possible to the Romanian frontier, hire two horses and their drivers to carry baggage, and walk along the Romanian, Polish and Czechoslovakian frontiers. This, we understood, would cover the cream of the scenery of this area. Rakhov, our point of embarkation, supplied us not only with horses and food for the next week, but our first glimpse into the conditions of this area. Wide-eyed, we stared at a constantly changing crowd of Orthodox Jews, peasants in costume, bands of gypsies, woodmen with their axes, and plunged our way through to us an unusual flock of children wishing to take us to their superior lodgings. Immediately, we felt we were in a new world altogether, pioneers for us in a true sense. Packing of horses with rucksacks by men in embroidered shirts and sheepskin jackets at six o'clock in the morning ought to be sufficient to fill anyone with a sense of adventure. And this enthusiasm grew as from day to day we walked in the most magnificent mountain scenery of this district. Here, then, is a holiday for many tastes. And I hope this district will open up more and more to English visitors. The very opposite was to be the case. Subcarpathian Ruthenia was soon to be swept up in the tide of history. Within a few months it had been annexed by Hungary and in the Second World War, most of its Jewish population perished in the Holocaust, and many of its Romani inhabitants were also murdered in the death camps. In 1945, Ruthenia was absorbed into the Soviet Union, and only since the fall of communism have visitors from the West once again been discovering its amazing scenery. A 
garland with a flavour of the musical life of the first Czechoslovak Republic. One of the legends of 20th century Czech music was Jaroslav Ježek, who died in wartime exile in New York at the age of just 35. He is best known for the songs he composed for the famous pre-war satirical cabaret, The Liberated Theatre, and he was also one of the pioneers of Czech jazz, fearlessly crossing the borders between popular and classical music. In November 1934, the young composer, he was 28 at the time, came into the radio, and as he sat at the piano, he talked about jazz. Ježek started by explaining and then demonstrating some basic jazz forms, starting with the blues. And then the composer gives an example of a quick foxtrot. crackly but wonderfully atmospheric recording there. Later on, the interviewer asks Jaroslav Ježek whether he feels that jazz can be adapted to suit European tastes, and the composer gives an amusing answer. Jazz, he says, has its roots in black American culture, and it's been absorbed successfully into the Anglo-Saxon tradition. But anyone who has tried to establish their own alternative kind of jazz has either ended up succumbing to second-rate imitation or has copied old forms of dance with a jazz veneer. This is the case with Czech jazz, which is based on the polka, and of German jazz, which has been adapted for the local dance halls and is banal and unbearably sentimental. Jazz is a new form of art. It demands a real composer and a proper orchestra made up of virtuosi. That's not the case with most of the so-called jazz orchestras, which are nothing more than the old coffeehouse dance bands. A contemptuous Jaroslav Ježek there, talking in November 1934. In the short time left to him before his tragically early death eight years later, he went on to prove that at the hands of a true virtuoso, European jazz really can shine. Thank you.